So we come this morning to the uh, very last verses of Romans. Fear not, I have uh, several months of review that I plan to do. So, so you knew that was a joke. That's good. I have one week of review. I am going to come back next week, uh, though we're going to cover the last verses. I just feel like we need to kind of go back and pull the, the threads together where we've been and pull together um, where, where we have been in the whole journey through Romans. I was thinking about it, and um, I think, I didn't go back and check, but I'm pretty sure the first sermon I preached in Romans was the first Sunday of January 2020. Um, so, yes, three years. Uh, through all of COVID, right? The three months later, COVID broke out, and uh, Romans saved us. So, this morning we are in the last few verses of Romans, the only wise God. Paul wraps up his letter with final greetings and a, and a final doxology. So, we're in... Romans 16, verses 21 to the end. And here we read, 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and my, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is a host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning to hear your voice. Lord Jesus, you said that the words that you speak to us, they are spirit and they are life. We pray that would be our experience this morning, that we would experience the work and the power of your spirit and the life that comes from you and from your word as you write it in our souls and reshape us in your own image. Father, we ask that you would come this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we see that in these last verses, the last chapter of Romans has been very personal. There have been a lot of greetings. He had some 20-some names of people that he greeted in Rome, and uh, there's a lot of people that he seems to know there. Um, He went from there to give them a warning. He loves these people. He cares for these people. He's concerned for the church, that church, our church, every church. And he gives a warning of the the dangers to their unity and to what God is doing among them. But then he turns now in these few verses, starting in 21, to send greetings from the people who are with him. And so he gives us another handful of names of folks who are with him who also send their greetings to Rome, starting in verse 21, there's, there are eight names here, there's a bunch of names here, but there's really only one that is familiar. We don't know much or anything about the rest of these guys, uh, but they're the first one we know, right? The first one, he says, is his fellow worker, Timothy. He greets you. And so we know Timothy. Timothy, it says, he is his fellow worker. I feel like that's an understatement. Timothy holds a dear place in Paul's life and and. Uh, Paul led him to the Lord. He is his father in the faith. Uh, Timothy has been traveling with him and doing ministry with him for eight years. 
Um, he is his apprentice in many ways. He has sent him on different missions, uh, different special things that he needed done. And so he sends his son, Timothy, and he ends up pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul spent two years in Ephesus planting and establishing that church in the gospel. Uh, and Timothy is the one who takes its pastorship. He moves on in 21. He lists three more names. We're not certain, again, who any of them are, except maybe if Lucius, in verse 21, uh, could be Luke. It says, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Um, some have suggested that Lucius could be Luke. They have different forms of the name, whether they're, they're, they're giving it in, in the which language and how they're transliterating it. But anyway, uh, apparently Luke, uh, Luke may be in Rome at this time. There are some passages where it says we and gives you this sense that Luke is in Rome at this time. So it could be. Lord only knows. But if so, that would mean that when he says my kinsmen at the end of verse 21, he's only talking about the last two guys, Jason and Sassipater, uh, because my kinsmen means uh, fellow Jews, fellow Israelites. And so uh, that wouldn't be Luke. We happen to know Luke is a Gentile. So either all three of them are Jews or he's referring to the last two. We, we don't know these things for sure. In verse 22, he said that we get this direct statement from the guy writing the letter. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote the letter, greet you in the Lord. So now we know that uh, Tertius is writing the letter to, to the Romans. He's a, a man, amanuensis. I think I say that right, amanuensis. A very common thing in those days to have somebody that you dictated to and they wrote the letter. We still do this, you know, take a letter. You know, so this is what Tertius is doing. We know that Paul is writing the letter. We know because the, the, the practice of the day was also that you, that you addressed the letter and signed the letter at the beginning. And so at the beginning, the first words of the letter are who it's from. I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 1. And in Verse 1, chapter 7, he goes on to say, To all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. From Paul, a servant of Christ, an apostle, to all those in Rome. And then Tertius is the guy writing it down for him. And he throws in his own greeting. I guess that's just a privilege you get if you're the one writing the letter. I, Tertius. So Paul doesn't write his own letters. We see in the end of Galatians, I just thought it was interesting, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, it made me think there's one letter that he, at the end of it he says, see, I, Paul, see what big letters I write in as he signs his, you know, his thing at the end of the letter because it was thought that Paul had bad eyesight, some difficulty seeing, and so, uh, you know, he writes in really big letters. It's the first large print Bible uh, when he was writing, you know, see what large letters I write with because I'm having trouble, but you, you see it. All right, so Gaius, Paul's host, he hosts a church that is there in Corinth, probably well-to-do if he's hosting the church in his home. The final two, Erastus, another prominent Corinthian, we're told he's the city, city treasurer in verse 23. And finally, he says, finally, our brother Cortus. These lists, they're, they're in some ways, they're tedious. It's like, you know, certain parts of the front of the Bible when you're, you're reading, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. But they have a place. There is an importance to them. And one of the things as I was finishing these lists and thinking about these people is, is simply this, that these lists testify to what he's about to say. In fact, you could say that what he's about to say flows out of the list. These lists testify to the power of God in the gospel. 
right? It's, it's a testimony. These are the folks. These are a handful of the folks who heard the gospel, right? In a time when there had been no gospel, there were Jews and there were pagans, and the gospel comes out. It's a Jewish savior. We're going to look at that here in a minute too. And the gospel goes out to these pagan Roman cities, and people come to Christ. People who have no background in, in, in Jewish history and law and Bible. The power and the glory of the gospel is that Jesus is building his church, calling these pagans who hear the name of Jesus for the first time, who hear the, the, the judgment of sin on their own hearts, and they recognize that they are sinful and they need a Savior, that this is the power and the glory of the gospel. It still is. We sometimes wonder as we look out there, how will any of them ever accept Jesus? We're getting more and more in our country to a place where a lot of them haven't grown up in the church. They don't know the Bible. You mentioned Moses or some of these early people, and they're like, who? How will they ever come to know Christ when our, when our, our country has gotten so far away from a, a biblical worldview and a familiarity with things Christian? And the reality is that was never necessary. These folks, the power and the glory of the gospel is that Jesus is building his church. And when the Jesus of the gospel is preached, people are convicted of their sin and come to faith in Christ. This is 58 AD-ish. Right? Gentiles, Jews, free and slave, wealthy and poor, all of them are, are putting their faith in Christ and are joining together as the church. Right? We see the power of it from these first days. It's still happening. We're sitting here like a church, just like this church, all called together by the same power and beauty and glory of the gospel that brings us, opens our eyes to the Savior. And all these people then, they are simply witnesses and a testimony to the gospel and the power of God to salvation. And Paul knows them all, and Paul witnesses the power of the gospel in their lives. And so this list in some ways prompts, perhaps, the worship that flows here at the end, and and at least the form that it takes as he closes his letter to these folks, right, with this, this, we call it a doxology. The word doxa is the word for glory. Right? And so we have biology. Bios is a word for life. And so we have the study or the word of, about life and bios. And doxology is that word uh, about glory, which is, is worship. And he ends and he flows. It literally just flows from Paul's heart. seems very naturally. And so we see in verses 25, he starts with, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. To him. And in verse 7, 27, he picks it back up and he says, To the only wise God, to, the, to him who's able to strengthen you, to, to the only wise God be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. All right, we have this, he's able to strengthen you in all praise and glory to the wise God. And everything in between, see, I want us to notice the structure that everything in between that first to him and that in 27, the last to the only wise God, to him, uh, there are these three According to's, right? It's supporting stuff, right? You're going to say to the only wise God who's able to strengthen you, to, to, to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel, to him, the only wise God, our Savior. And in between, he says, according to my gospel. 25 again, according to the revelation of the mystery. And then verse 27 again, according to the command of the eternal God. 26. Three according to's. 
and he builds them. God is able to strengthen you according to the gospel, according to the revelation of this mystery, according to the command of the eternal God. I want to start in the middle with the according to's. The three according to's, the supporting material to, to, to the worship and the praise that he gives to God. These express, because they express, he praises him as the only wise God. And then these are the supporting material that show the wisdom of God and the salvation of sinners, the gospel. They show the eternal plan of salvation. And so we see in these three according to's, the first one I think we see the power of the gospel, and the second according to we see the promise of the gospel, and in the third according to we see the purpose of the gospel, well alliterated for you, the power, the promise, and the purpose in the according to's. And so... In 25, he says, to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. God is able according to the gospel, the power of the gospel. And he is saying that the the gospel that has saved you, that all these people know and testify to, is the same gospel, he says, that strengthens you. It's the same power that God uses to strengthen you that he used to save you. Right then, now to the God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Right, it is something that we don't outgrow the gospel, the power, the truth, and the the the, the reality that the gospel, which is really just the word about Christ, Jesus is the gospel, and the gospel is the message that presents this Christ to us. What saves us is Christ, not the gospel. The gospel presents Christ. Christ, when embraced, is the one who saves. And the one who saves us is the one who strengthens us. The same Christ, according to my gospel, he says. So to him who is able to strengthen you, to strengthen you means to, the word there means to establish. Uh, to, To strengthen you means to cause you to stand firm, to establish you in the faith, to establish you in the truth. And it's God who does it. He says, according to my gospel, which I find interesting, the preaching of Jesus Christ. When he says my gospel, he simply means the gospel that I preach. It's not Paul's. It's my gospel too, according to my gospel. Right? The gospel that I preach, the once for all gospel delivered to us. And what is the gospel that Paul preaches? Well, he's told us many times in many ways, hasn't he? First Corinthians chapter 1, he puts it this way. It pleased God. Through the folly of what we preach. That's how God does it. The folly of what we preach. He did it then to Gentiles and pagans who had no history with the God of Israel. No no history with any of this stuff. But through the folly of what we preach, he saves those who believe. For Jews, they demand a sign, and Greeks, they demand wisdom. The Jews demanded of Jesus, give us a sign, show us you're the one. Right? They wanted a sign that he was the Messiah. The Greeks are seeking wisdom. How does Jesus fit into their whole pursuit? And he says, well, we just preach Christ crucified. That's my gospel. A crucified Savior who died for your sins according to the gospel. It's a stumbling block. The word under stumbling block there is the word scandalon. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. They stumble over Christ. And it's folly to the Gentiles. 
So, and he's talking about the Jews who reject Jesus and the Gentiles who reject Christ. It's a stumbling block and it seems like folly. But to those who are called, right? He, he opposes the called here against those who don't believe. There's a sense in which everybody's called. We preach the gospel to everybody, right? <clears throat> but to those who don't believe, there is a calling. To those who are called, it is the power of God. There is that call of the Holy Spirit, that work of the Spirit of God to open our eyes and to awaken our hearts, the work of rebirth, of regeneration. To those who are called, it is the power of God. To both Jews and Greeks, to everybody, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Even as he praises him as the only wise God because his wisdom is manifest in Christ. The gospel is the power of God to save us. And he says to establish us and to cause us to stand. It's the same Christ. All Christians then, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, all Christians love evangelism and missions. All true biblical Christians love evangelism and missions because this is how God saves people. Right? It is through the foolishness of what we preach that men believe, women believe, and come to faith in Christ. He is presented in the gospel. This is why Paul opened the letter, even as I think he is closing it here in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who will believe, whether Jew or Gentile. Anybody, that's anybody in the world. Witness the list of names that Paul has been going through. He has seen the power of the gospel to save Jew and Gentile. They were shocked when they first started seeing Gentiles come to the faith. They had to have special meetings to talk about it. Is this legit? Do they get in too? How can it be? Right? There is this, you read the book of Acts, and starting even in verse chapter 15, they have a whole council. They had to have a special huge meeting to say, how can this be? And what are we going to do about it? Jew and Gentile, the same gospel. It is the power that strengthens us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says this, Christ Jesus has become to us wisdom from God. And that's why he goes through these accordings too, and then he says to the only wise God. For this Christ that we're talking about in these according to uh, has become for us the the wisdom of God manifest in the life, death, and resurrection of his son in the gospel that is ours. So the power of the gospel. In the second according to, I think we see the, 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 uh, did I say in there? I wrote the wrong thing here. The purpose. Now, the last one is purpose. Sorry. <laughs> Promise. Thank you. I got too many thoughts in my head, and I wrote down the wrong word in my notes. <clears throat> so the gospel is the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret, right? That's the second one. According to the gospel that I preach, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now it is being disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. He says, the gospel that I'm preaching to you, it's not new. It is something, it's a mystery that has been, been proclaimed and known at some level for ages. Israel knew the Messiah was coming. 
They didn't know who the Messiah would be. They didn't know uh, when he would come. They didn't know how exactly he was going to save Israel and how he was going to do it. They didn't know all these things, but they knew he was coming, and they knew he would show up at some point, and they knew that he would save Israel. It was an ancient promise. It goes all the way back to creation and fall, right, to the seed of the woman, right? When the, when the fall happens, God speaks to the serpent, and he tells him the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The seed of the woman, he will crush. The same language he's using here. He's going to crush the serpent's head and he, you, will bruise his heel, right? So there's that image of of the foot crushing the head, the victorious crush. Now the heel is bruised, he's wounded in the process. But the crushing takes place, which is why he tells the church, just back up in verse 20, that God of peace is going to soon crush Satan under your feet, right? It's the same language, the promise and the image goes all the way back to Genesis, The promised seed of the woman, when it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head, that word seed there is singular. It's not plural. It doesn't say you're, the seeds of the woman, like the human race in, is going to win over the devil, that there will be some group of people or some. He says, no, there will, these, there will be a seed, a particular one, a particular man in a particular point. And this is important because this promise is expanded and republished through the ages. As he said, it's a mystery that was kept secret through the ages. But in Genesis 22, 18, he says, he he republishes and expands it again to to Abraham in the same way. He says in verse Genesis 22, 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Through your offspring, again, the word offspring there is singular. It can be translated as your seed, in your seed, your singular seed. Right? Not in your offspring. He was told that your, your offering will be as the sand on the seashore. Like you're going to have a lot of offspring. But through your one seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul makes a big deal about it. When you go to Galatians chapter 3, he quotes this verse, and he makes a big deal about the fact. And this is where the, when we say that the Bible is God's word, and every, I was having a debate this week about changing a verb tense from, from, from is to uh, to, to something that is in process. And I'm like, you can't do that, right? The, the, the verb form is important. We can't change it. If you change it, you change the meaning. And here Paul is arguing where it would be in English on the, the S on the end of a word, right? He argues that that S is the word of God. If you take the S off and then it's offspring plural, if you put the S on, it's offsprings plural, Right? But without the S, and this is his arguing, God is saying there is one. There is one seed. There is one man. There will be one seed of Abraham, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. One seed of the woman, one seed of Abraham, the man Jesus Christ. This is republished and expanded through all of Israel's history. It was republished to David. He was told that he would have a son, that he would be his Lord. If you remember the psalm, David's son would be his Lord and that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. It's republished and expanded in the prophets who see there's one like unto the Son of Man coming on the clouds. It's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, this one who would take on him all the sin of us all and he would be crushed for our iniquities, this one, right? That it's, it's over and over and over. There's this expectation that there is this one who is coming. A mystery, 
Who is this guy? When is he going to come? How is he going to do it? The promise of the gospel, the promise of Jesus, is this scarlet thread that runs through all of Scripture from the first verses to the last when we see on the throne of Revelation a lamb on the throne looking as if he had been slain. Right? This this scarlet thread that runs through. And so according to my gospel, the preaching of Christ, according to the revelation of this mystery, it's been kept secret through these long ages. We've longed to look into it, to see, to know who he is. But now it has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. It is being made known now to the nations. This is the last one, the purpose of the gospel. Right? The purpose of this gospel mystery of the ages is to be preached for the salvation of all nations. It's through the seed of Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this seed. And now it is to be published. You see it in verse 26. But it's now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, he says. It's being made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to all nations calling for the obedience of faith. Israel thought Messiah would be their savior. They thought he would restore the nation of Israel to them, that he would be a a socio-political military leader who who would save and establish Israel. But The mystery of the ages is this. He was not Israel's savior. He was the savior of the world. And he was using Israel to bring Jesus to the world. And it is his eternal, the mystery. It's been kept, kept in in a sense, shrouded in this mystery of what it would be like, which is why the Jews, to them, it's a scandal that Jesus would be God himself, saving not just them, but all of Adam's seed, all nations from the curse of sin and the fall. It is the a command of, he says, the eternal God to call all people to the obedience of faith, to all nations. The gospel comes to us. It's an interesting phrase, to the obedience of faith. Some have said that, that what is here is the obedience that comes by faith, that, that he is commanding us all to a life of obe- the obedience that comes from faith. Where I think, and that, that, that is true, but I think it's, it is the obedience that faith is. Faith is the obedience that's called for in the gospel. Right? The obedient, in other words, that the gospel comes to us as a command to be obeyed. It does come as an invitation. I've had this conversation before. I've said this before. But it comes as an invitation and a command, right? There's this invitation to come and to find forgiveness and rest for your souls. But to find that forgiveness in the rest of your souls, you must repent and believe. And those always come in the imperative command, right? The only way to find and to experience the forgiveness and Rest that is the invitation of the gospel is to, is to hear the gospel and to respond with the obedience of faith. We see it used this way in several places. I'll just give you one. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, it says this, when the Lord Jesus is, this is the second 
coming, the return of Christ. The one time he comes back again at the end of history to wrap things up. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And the good news is if you will repent and believe that you will be forgiven and find eternal rest for your souls. It's an invitation to the rest. But the command comes to repent and believe, to have faith. And when we obey that command, when we repent and believe, we do come to an obedience that flows from faith. We follow him. And lives of obedience mark his followers. So that is also true. But the only way to come to him is to turn away from our sin put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. And so the obedience of faith is the only saving response to the gospel preached. Paul says, my gospel, right? The preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery that had been hidden through the ages, but which has now been uh, revealed to, to all the nations. And the only response of anyone, Jew or Gentile, that is going to be saving is going to be repentance and faith in Christ. And so he says, to God be the glory for all of it. To God be the glory. To God, to him who is able to strengthen us according to this same gospel. He's, he's preaching to the church, so to speak. So to the one who, who has already called you by this gospel, saved you, he is the one who now, as the church, and, and for us we feel it more and more as our nation goes astray, as, as things become more hostile, as things become more bizarre, as things become less Christian, as, as they become less uh, amenable to the things that we believe and preach, more and more it is true that God must establish his church. And to, the, to him who is able to do it, he is, he is able to strengthen you, to establish you according to his gospel. That same gospel is the dunamis. And there when it says that he is able to is the word dunamis. It's a word of ability, a word of power. For dynamite, God has the dunamis, the power, the ability to do it. To the one who has got the dunamis, the power to establish you as a church. God, the God of power and glory, who does not only give birth to his church through the gospel, but then he's able to establish it. He's able to keep it and to preserve it, to empower it, to advance his kingdom, and to continue to build it through the ages and through the millennia. He establishes us in the faith against error. That was the warning he gave a minute ago, that there are people in the church who don't serve the Lord Jesus. They got their own appetites of smooth talk and flattery, right? He's able to establish us against error, against lies, against this deceit. But he's also able to establish us in holiness against temptation and to make us more and more to sanctify his church and to make us more like Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, the Lord is faithful. Same word. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. And he will guard you against the evil one. 
That's what he is saying here. To the one who is able to do that, faithful to do that, will do that. Our hope and confidence, my friends, is not that we are strong enough for these dark days, for these difficult times, whatever they may be, and we think they're dark, but if you move to Nigeria, you'd think we're a bunch of, I think of the right word, Can I still say sissies? (laughs) There are parts of the world where they would look on what we're going through and be like, you have no idea. Through history and and across the globe, right? But he is is able. And our hope and confidence is not that we are strong enough to hold on to God because if that is our hope and confidence, we are lost. The church would have ended many eons ago. Our hope is that God is faithful and he is able to establish and to guard his church against the evil one. That is our hope. He is able. He is faithful. Verse 20, it is the God of peace who will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is mighty and he is for us and he will do it. I say it in that benediction, and, and he will do it. Only he can do it. Go in his peace and his power. Right? And so Paul prays in verse 20 again, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Because Christ, we just read, is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And when his grace is with you, the sustaining, preserving, empowering grace of Jesus Christ. When it is with you, it establishes us against the enemy. The gospel is a scandal to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles and to the world. But to those who are called, it is the power right, and the wisdom of God for salvation. Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a rhetorical question. God is the one asking it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer, rhetorically, is you cannot escape. And so we should not neglect to obey the gospel and to repent, and to put our faith in Christ. Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3 says, The knowledge of God's mystery, this mystery kept hidden through the ages, which is now disclosed and revealed, but the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the wisdom of God, what God has given us in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jews may stumble over it, Gentiles might find it foolish, but the truth is this, God's way of salvation is perfect. Right? The gospel, this is God's way. This is, this is the perfect way of salvation. There is a beauty and a power and a glory to what God has done and how God has done it. And it is perfect. To those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. And we see it. Our Savior is a perfect Savior, perfectly suited to save us 
from our sin. Perfectly able. Perfectly timed. So have you obeyed the gospel? That is the obvious question as he talks about the preaching of this gospel that is able to save us. It's able to strengthen us. It is this mystery being disclosed, preached to all the nations. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you turned from your sin, repented of who you were and and how you lived apart from God and put your faith and trust in the, the perfect Savior, the wisdom of God? And so the worship as it comes together from 25 into 27, now to him who is able to strengthen you to the only wise God, be all glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Right? That glory comes and rebounds through Christ Jesus. Now when it says he is the only wise God, it's not saying that, he's, that he is the wise God among foolish gods unless you use God with a little g. He's not one God among many, unless you think of the gods of the pagans and such. He is the only God. And if you put him up against any, he is, and what he is saying here is he is the only wise being. That's why Jesus answered at one time, he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. And unless you know that I'm him, you shouldn't say it. Right? There's only one who is wise. There is the only wise God, the only wise being. In fact, King James translated, God only wise. Paul breaks out in Romans 11, if you remember it, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways as he has worked through the ages, this gospel mystery hidden and now disclosed. Through the gospel, the wisdom of the world has been made foolish. Eternal glory belongs to God through Jesus Christ. All the glory for the salvation of sinners in Christ Jesus rebounds to the glory of his God and Father. As as Ephesians, you know, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture points us that way again and again, that it's through Christ that God gets the glory, that it's through the saving of sinners that God is glorified. Philippians 1, 1, 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness, Paul's praying for the church, praying that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that we would be strengthened and established in holiness in Christ. And he says, it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God, to the only Wise God, be glory forevermore. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, you know the passage, right? At this this name, the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Through Christ, proclaiming him Lord, obeying the gospel, putting your faith and trust in him, all to the glory of God the Father through him. My friends, may our lives come to the full obedience of faith that comes to us through Christ Jesus, through the gospel, to the glory of the Father, the only wise God, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our submission. 
as your soul sing with the psalmist in Psalm 103. I was trying to put into words as you read this. And there are things that Paul puts into words, and, and but by the Spirit of God, you cannot do them justice. But it, it should be, and it comes to us. I, I think of the psalmist as we're trying to capture what Paul is expressing is our response to God, to this only wise God that should be glory forever. Psalm 103, 1 says, Oh, my soul, and all that is within me. And I try to gather that up. I try that to be the case when I'm singing and when I'm praying and that I'm not detached and I'm not just listening or I'm not just saying words, but all that is within me, bless his holy name. To the only wise God who is our Savior, Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord, like declare what is true about him, right? To, to proclaim it and to say it in worship, sing it, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name, worship his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Have you experienced the wisdom and the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced it in your own life, this obedience of faith full of saving wisdom and power that was manifest for us? Because when we do, our heart's cry will be, oh, my soul, and all that is in me. When we behold our God seated on his throne, full of wisdom and power and saving grace for us and for our salvation, the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you, by your spirit, will give us the grace and the power to see the truth that is expressed in these verses. It seems beyond the grasp of our words to express. But I pray that even now you would awaken in our heart this worship. And that our hearts would indeed go out to the only wise God who is our Savior. And that we would, our souls and all that is within us, would obey the gospel. That we would repent and believe and that we would follow Jesus to the praise and glory of your holy name. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.